This is Astrobiological, bringing you the universe in plain human. So, hello, hello. It's good to have you along. Welcome to the show. This is Astrobiological. My name is Ben, and I'm bringing you the universe plain human. Well, the best I can. So again, how's it going? Thanks for uh, thanks for along. It's uh, as always a big week in astrobiology and related scientific fields. And uh, just lately, uh, it's been a big week for me personally. Uh, I've got a new YouTube video up um, introducing the Sterling uh, rover. This is a uh, concept design for a rover which could uh, explore the surface of Venus for up to three months using a very antiquated piece of kit known as the Stirling engine um, created by a Scottish clergyman known as Reverend Robert Stirling in 1816. Uh, he uh, originally uh, uh, invented this thing as a, uh, a competitor to the steam engine because at the time uh, steam engines were still quite dangerous uh, not very OH&S friendly but uh, you know, as we all know, steam engines uh, became refined with time, and uh, so the rest is history. But uh, apparently, this little gizmo has applications in extremely high efficiency industrial refrigeration and portable refrigeration. So uh, scientists are pinning hopes on this uh, this technology to help us uh, get up close and personal with Venus. That's a big thing. So that my video was about that. Uh, it went up two days ago yesterday I think yeah, so check it out it's a lot of fun and I also had uh, a feature in another video a collaboration video with Aaron Freeman of the science the day YouTube channel he's a friend of mine from Chicago in the USA and we had a bit of a chat about uh, sex in space of all things sex in space pregnancy in space could uh, baby making work in space and on other planets with vastly different conditions of Earth. it was a fun little chat and I uh, suggest you, uh, you know, have a listen. See what you think. So, what's been happening for you? What's been happening in general? Some news I've been thinking about viruses this week, uh, and in particular the uh, emerging field of astrovirology. Uh, viruses are, of course, uh, basically a biomolecule. They're not really a living thing. They can't uh, do anything but reproduce. What they do is they uh, infect other cells and co-opt the genome of that cell to produce viruses until the cell itself is destroyed. So they are destructive, yes, but they've also played a major, major role in the course of life on Earth because essentially every single cellular organism on Earth has had or has one or more uh, viral parasites and uh, Viruses play a key role in uh, evolution due to the fact that they are able to uh, occasionally mess around with the DNA of the organism they are infecting. Um, rearranging it a little bit, uh, adding bits, taking bits out for their own nefarious ends. And viruses are being touted as a, a, a new marker for life on other planets. I've done a couple of little videos on this on my Facebook group. But viruses are the most abundant form of life on Earth. Um, 
I'm reading from an article in Astrobiology Magazine titled Are Viruses the New Frontier for Astrobiology? So it runs as follows. As I've said, viruses are the most abundant form of life on Earth, uh, outnumbering all cellular life by up to a factor of 10. And calls for study of viruses to be incorporated into extraterrestrial science missions uh, underway. They're an integral part of life on Earth as we know it, says Ken Stedman, a virologist at Portland State University Center for Life and Extreme Environments, and co-author of a NASA paper, a 250-page NASA paper in which viruses are mentioned six times. Currently, no missions are uh, in the planning stages to uh, explore, uh, say, for example, uh, the plumes of Enceladus or Europa, uh, which are believed to be water worlds, and they should carry with them experiments to detect variants and viruses, variant being the uh, inactive form of a virus. But uh, viruses in themselves are essentially indetectable. They are only detectable by their effects on other creatures are, for example, the wind can only be detected by its effect on its environment. We can't see the wind. Viruses are the same. But uh, they may cause changes in metabolism which could be detected um, from afar by uh, new and future missions. So that's astrovirology. Very interesting uh, avenue of research for many which is uh, emerging now. I'm going to follow this one. I'm planning on doing a video on astrovirology pretty soon. I also came up with an idea tonight for one um, about proteins, how the proteins work. The proteins are an important part of the story. <coughs> what is so interesting about proteins, you ask? There's a special class of proteins called enzymes. Enzymes blow me away and really do speak of some kind of underlying order in the universe. I mean, you can't just study enzymes and their activity without thinking there's some kind of voodoo at work. When I was young, and even occasionally in these adult years I've got to confess, airplanes would fill me with wonder. I mean, we know how airplanes work, I'm not silly, but it still somehow seems magical. Somehow that big and well metal thing just has no business flying. It's like the old chestnut about bees. Yep, we know they have no business flying, but they just do. Enzymes, for me, have that same mystique. They are catalytic proteins which enable a vast array of biochemical reactions and processes to take place. Without these little worker bees forming around inside us, DNA is useless. After all, DNA may be biomolecular royalty, but the French Revolution taught us what happens to royalty when no one's listening it becomes surplus to requirements. Enzymes are thought to work in two main ways. Both avenues are a function of shape. All proteins perform functions tied into their conformation. Over 30,000 proteins are known to exist with a bewildering array of structures, knots, crazy tangles, wheels, hooks and just about any other shape you can imagine. How are all these shapes important you ask? Do you ever dive into a toolbox to perform basic household repair jobs? Let's think. Pop quiz. Your university graduation certificate has fallen off the wall, causing your cat to jump 20 feet. After you've peeled the cat from the ceiling, you need to get the hook back into the wall. Do you grab A. A screwdriver B. A banana C. A hammer 
D, laundry detergent, or E, a book. Smartass remarks aside, you grab the hammer. Why? Because the hammer has a very particular shape, which turns out to be just right for banging small things, nails, into bigger things, or walls. The hammer's job is a function of its shape. It doesn't really stop there. Analogous to proteins, which have been evolving and changing for billions of years, hammers are the result of centuries of engineering and refinement. After all, if you're in a hurry or just plain lazy, you could have hammered the nail with any heavy object. Lucky the cat's out of reach right now. However, something heavy like E, the book, would kind of do the job, but it would have limitations. It may not fit in your hand well, it may rip when being slammed into the nail, if it's a soft cover book, it may absorb the energy of impact, its width will impair your view of the task at hand, and so on. Get the picture? Having a nice handy hammer circumvents all these limitations. So, you hammer the nail back in and hang your certificate back up. Your cat is having a bad day. The hammering is driven over the fence and into the neighbor's yard. Other tools in your toolbox have very particular functions tied closely into their shape or design, and so it is with proteins. The crazy whirls and loops in myoglobin, for instance, allow it to be a particularly effective binding pigment, which attaches to iron and oxygen. Found in all mammals, it only appears in humans after muscle injury. It appears in higher levels in ocean-going mammals such as whales and dolphins, which often die for extended periods, allowing them to remain submerged. Protein chemistry and function is surprisingly interesting, but falls outside the scope of this podcast. Proteins are perhaps more astonishing given that they aren't alive, yet they tirelessly perform myriad functions within living things, allowing a signal of life to emerge from chemistry and metabolic white noise. If you find proteins or other biomolecules interesting, which ones interest you? Interesting comments may form the basis for future blog posts or even YouTube videos, or even future podcasts. Leave a suggestion for the Biochemical Employee of the Week. So, proteins. Weird little things. I mean, this is the very beginning, perhaps before um, DNA. And whilst I was writing the uh, loose script for this podcast this afternoon, I remembered a little class of proteins called prions, or prions. And these are actually infectious proteins which manage to replicate themselves and spread without the use of DNA or genetic material at all. Now, prions are responsible for a famous condition known as mad cow's disease or bovine spongiform encephalopathy. And it affects the brains of, of, it destroys the brains of infected animals, basically sending them mad, as the name suggests. Are not nice. It, uh, similar diseases do appear in humans. Prions, a protein that can replicate itself. It's worth looking at. So, without any further ado, how about an interview? Now, as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, uh, I did a collaboration or a chat video, really, with Aaron Freeman. So, here it is. We are here, do we want to talk today about sex and reproduction in space? I'm here with our first live convo with my good buddy, my best Australian pal. 
<laughs> ben Roberts of Astro Biological on YouTube and on Facebook. Ben, I'm so glad to talk to you. Uh, thanks, Aaron. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Tell us quickly about Astrobiological for folks who aren't familiar with it. And if you're not familiar with Astrobiological, you should definitely check it out. They're on Facebook and on YouTube. But what is Astrobiological and who the heck are you? Who the heck am I first? Well, my name is uh, Ben Roberts, as you've told all on sundry. Um, uh, just, uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a working scientist. I was for a while, but uh, I you know, I basically do just a regular day-to-day factory work. But uh, I have an interest in science. I have been interested in science my whole life. Um, I went to university, like I said, uh, studied science there. I did a double major. I did uh, biology and earth sciences. Entirely uh, reasonable yeah. for Mr. Esther Biological. As far as I know, no one has ever admitted to having had sex in space. Yeah, that was admitted, but, uh, you know, I guess they're up in a tin can for months and months at a time. Who who knows? Who's, who's to say? The sleeping condition on the International Space Station are not conducive to two-person occupation. On the Space Station, they sleep essentially in little closets with a sleeping bag. They sleep up or down or... Up, down, doesn't matter. You need handrails and belts and harnesses and things to hold... I'm guessing at least two people together. Um... Yeah, who knows? The mind boggles, really. <laughs> a range of experiments done using freeze-dried mouse fur, and they took it up to the International Space Station, and then they, yeah, they, it was stored up there for a period of time, a lengthy period of time, and then brought back down to Earth to see what the effect of space radiation would be on this sperm. And according to the study, there was statistically no no real difference between Earth Earth-bound sperm, for one of, I don't know what the word is, and sperm from outer space. <laughs> Well, I, I must say that as a as a sperm producer myself, I'm proud of my little guy. They just basically left it up there to see what the effect of the, the background uh, cosmic radiation would be. We think it's ethically permissible to give birth to a child whose prospects of a normal, healthy life, you cannot predict, but you can easily identify them. They live a very isolated, weird, socially restricted life for a start. They would have grown up inside a tin can on some Martian plane somewhere. And they couldn't really come to Earth and spend time on Earth because our gravity would be too much for it and all kinds of things would just, you know, be too much for it to bear. Like, it'd be in quarantine this whole life, essentially, because it, it couldn't come to Earth and live normally. There's a very bad movie about that called The Space Between Us about a kid who grows up on Mars and uh, yep. it comes as a teenager to Earth. It's sort of the uh, Mars as escape pod argument you're making. Armageddon comes or something, you know? Like, eventually, we, we're just going to have to do what life's done over the course of history and, you know, get through this disaster and, and see what happens down the road. Based on your knowledge of biology and planetary sciences, are you optimistic that we will be able to figure out some way to reproduce in space? Uh, there were actually seven pregnancies confirmed in the Antarctic bases, Australian Antarctic bases, between 1996 and 2005, I think it was. They weren't supposed to happen, but they did, because it, it just this enclosed, very sealed-off, hostile environment. And they, it's it's like an, an analogy for space. And they thinking, well, if people being with that, it's just going to happen. Like, you got a, a bunch of horny astronauts in a tin can traveling for years, years together, or on another planet, setting up setting up shop on another planet, it's, it's going to happen. And they're just, nature will just have to find a way to make it work, or, or we, I'm optimistic that we can make it work, let's put it that way, that's going to happen. The bottom line optimistic takeaway here is, 
that there will be sex and reproduction in space because human beings are not just excitable apes like you and me, but they are yeah. horny apes. <laughs> like yeah, well, yeah, we are. What can I say? I've got four kids. I don't know how many kids you got. We're all, you know, we're all, we're all adults. As we take our steps towards becoming a space-faring civilization and making humans a multi-planet species, I'm sure that all the, uh, the little turns and stops along the way will be covered on your wonderful channel on YouTube, Astro Biological. As soon as it comes in the news, I know you'll be talking about it. And on- You'll take, you'll take on there. I'm just saying, but on Facebook, anyone who'd like to see Ben makes lovely, short, really short, little fun informational videos, and you can see them on Astro Biological on Facebook. I'm Eric Freeman, and my channel Science Today is on YouTube as well, yes. and on Facebook. I recommend it. Ben, it's been fun talking to you on my first international collaboration. And uh, we'll look great. forward. Uh, we'll be in touch, and we'll talk to you soon.